welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. That every person is an image bearer of God, that that is our basic foundation of who we are, which is in contrast to the Mediterranean or Augustan tradition that would have us um, saying that our original basis is um, original sin, the Celts would say, yeah, that happens, but our basic foundation is that we are image bearers of God, that we are beloved. And also along with that is that nature also bears the image of God and is the divine revelation so that we can understand more about the divine through the landscape and through nature. And I have just been captured with that being a foundation of um, who we are and what nature is. So join with me in this prayer. Um, I'm also having us look at doing a little visio divina along with this. Um, This is Cosmic Cliffs. For those of you who have been following the news, the James Webb Telescope has opened up and is sending us pictures that Uh, at least these human eyes on this world have not seen before and beheld. This is called Cosmic Cliffs, and you are looking at a star-forming region or an area. You're peering through cosmic dust, which sheds light on how stars are formed. So this is like a star nursery, is the way I, I would describe it. And it is, it is, it is. Yeah, and we're going to talk about it afterwards. That's awesome. Okay, so hear this opening prayer. Receive these words. For the night skies opening outwards, star upon star, expanse after expanse, thanks be to you, O God. For the mystery of your presence in and beyond all that can be seen, thanks be to you. Guide me, guide us further into the inner universe of my soul, ever opening inwards, light upon light, new depth after new depth. Guide me through strange and fearful places towards the place of your eternal dwelling and assure me again that in drawing closer to you, I draw closer to the heart of every living being, that in drawing closer to you, I approach the heart of life. Come and worship. Um, if you're if you're if you're just coming in, fans are in the back, water's in the back. We got ice, we got we got water, we got fans. It's going to be a great day. At least it's not tomorrow, right? It's supposed to be like almost 100 tomorrow. Um, that was super fun, super fun. Uh, my name is Mike. If we haven't met, one of the pastors here at Awaken. So glad that you're with us. Um, <laughs> my ADD tendencies are just like lighting up right now. But keep doing what you're doing. Like. This is going to be fine, but I've never experienced this before. Um, There's a couple things you want to let you know about before we get going. Number one, if you're new to Awaken, very glad that you're here. If you're able and willing, please fill out a um, I'm new or connect card. Uh, There are 
QR codes on the back of the pews. Uh, you can do that online as well. Uh, there are cards in the seat pockets and the pews in front of you. Let us know that you're here. Drop those in the black boxes on your way out, and we will uh, connect with you and let you know, uh, or invite you to a beverage of your choice to get to know you and for you to get to know us. Also, if you have tithes and offerings, you can scan that same QR code or, or put them in the black boxes. And I just want to let you know, um, like when you give to Awaken, a lot of times people think like, what happens when like you give to Awaken? One of the things that happens is you help fund the missional partnerships that we have. If anybody was in the park uh, on July 3rd, Pastor Kelly randomly showed up and shared a story about some uh, one of the ways that Awaken's living into its values. Um, this happened uh, last week. That's uh, Miss Tanya's deck. And a few folks from Awaken, also known as my teenagers, who may or may not have been under house arrest, um, helped me paint that deck. And so, um, uh, yeah, that's um, a really important thing and a really important moment for this woman. And um, so we're just doing what we can. Um, but FYI, like the paint that we purchased and the brushes and all that, like you did that. Like that's what, that's what happens when you support Awaken. Um, so thank you for that. Um, those are the things that happen without you even knowing unless we tell you about them. A um, couple things that are happening coming up. Um, number one, Camp Create is it's still going um, July the 20th. So this Wednesday, we've got three things happening. We've got a fly fishing trip. We've got uh, needle felting with Michaela and Clay City Creations with Mr. Z. So if kiddos want to be a part of that and you are not aware, go online. You can sign up for all of those. Um, we are also hiring two positions, admin and operations, and then kids community directors. So if you know anybody or uh, have people that you think might be a good fit and part of our team, let them know. Both of those uh, job descriptions are online. And then last but not least, the STEM Mingle is back. That's science, technology, engineering, and math, friends. We don't leave anybody out around here at Awaken. So if we have mingles for artists, we have mingles for the STEM folks, too. Uh, I, from what I understand, um, we'll be re you'll, you'll be reading, uh, I don't consider myself a stemmer, uh, uh, braiding sweetgrass. So that happens once a month, uh, starting August 16th, 7 to 8.30. Paul Capel, who's right over here. Wave, Paul, if you would. He's our contact for that. So um, that's that. Are you guys ready to rock and roll today? All right, we are going to uh, keep going in our series called Lost in Translation. We started this last week. If you're new to Awaken, this is a series we do often in the summer because the Bible is difficult to understand. And it's one of my favorite series that we do every year because what we think about and how we interpret the Bible matters. Like some of the best moments in human history are connected to how people have interpreted the scriptures. Consequently, or alternatively, some of the worst moments in human history are connected to how people understand and read the Bible. So what we do with this book really matters. And Lost in Translation invites us to uh, expose maybe some of our biases, expose some of the ways in which we read the Bible. I was with a life group this last week, and we talked about the fact that there is no view from nowhere. What, 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 the, what, what I mean by that is uh, people say, like, oh, it's just a plain reading of the Bible. There is no plain reading of the Bible because you're reading it. And you have a lens. You have a, 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 a history, a story. You live in a particular body. You, you exist in a social class. 
you come from a particular region in the world. So how you read the Bible is actually, or there, there's no view from nowhere. You're not objective. So Lost in Translation invites us to name those things. How do we come to scripture? What are the lenses that we bring? And let's interrogate them. Let's expose them. The Bible was written by occupied and oppressed people. I don't often find myself occupied or oppressed in this body. So when I read the Bible, is it possible that I might miss some of those undertones and, and ways in which the Bible was written? Absolutely. So Lost in Translation is all about that. We take difficult, hard to understand, bizarre, um, alarming passages, today's no exception, and, uh, and really dive into them and see what the Spirit of God might be saying to us here today. So are you up for that? All right. Um, this, this passage is um, it's a, it's a bit of a long one. It's, I want to read the whole story. So uh, I'm not going to invite you to stand for this, and nor is it going to be on the screen, the text. But if you want to follow along, we're in 2 Kings chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 24, and we'll read into chapter 7. Uh, this is from, I think, the, the English uh, standard version, something that just reads a little easier. So here's the story. Sometime later, however, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. As a result, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. One day as the king of Israel was walking along the wall of the city, a woman called to him, Please, help me, save me, my lord, my king. And he answered, If the lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I have neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. But then the king asked, what is the matter? And she replied, this woman said to me, come, let's eat your son today and then we will eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. And then the next day I said to her, kill your son so we can eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair. And as the king walked along the wall, the people could see that he was wearing burlap under his robe next to his skin. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elijah's head from his shoulders this very day, the king vowed. Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders of Israel. And when the king sent a messenger to summon him, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, a murderer has sent a man to cut my head off. When he arrives, shut the door and keep him out. We will soon hear his master's footsteps follow. And when Elisha was still saying this, the messenger arrived. And the king said, all the misery from the Lord is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And Elisha replied, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what he says. By this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost one piece of silver, and 12 quarts of barley grain will cost one piece of silver. The officer assisting the king said to the man, that could not happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, you will see it happen with your eyes, but you will not eat of it at all. Now there were four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Why should we sit here waiting to die, they asked each other. We'll starve if we stay here, but with the famine in the city, we'll starve if we go back there. We may as well go out and surrender to the Aramean army. If they let us live, so much the better, but if they kill us, we would have died anyway. So at twilight, they set out for camp. Of the Arameans, and when they came to the edge of camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to attack us. 
they cried to one another. And so they panicked and ran into the night, abandoning their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and everything else. They fled for their lives. When the men with leprosy arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another, eating and drinking wine. They carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid it. Finally, they said to each other, this is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. So come, let us go back and tell the people at the palace. So they went back to the city and told the gatekeepers what had happened. We went out to the tents. They were all in order, but there was not a single person around. The gatekeepers shouted the news to the people in the palace. They, the king got out of bed in the middle of the night and told his officers, I know what has happened. The Arameans know we're starving, and so they've left their camp and hidden, it in, the, hidden in the fields. They're expecting us to leave the city, and then they will take us alive and capture the city. One of his officers replied, we'd better send out scouts to check into this. Let them, let them take five of the remaining horses, and if something happens to them, it will be no worse than if they stay here and die with the rest of us. So two chariots and horses were prepared. The king sent scouts to see what had happened to the Aramean army, and they went all the way to the Jordan River, following a trail of clothing and equipment that the Arameans had thrown in their mad rush to escape. The scouts returned and told the king about it. Then the people of Samaria rushed out, plundered the Aramean camp, and so it was true. Six quarts of choice flour were sold for one piece of silver. Twelve quarts of barley grain were sold for one piece of silver, just as the Lord had promised. The king appointed his officer to control traffic at the gate, but he was knocked down and trampled to death as the people rushed out. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for, uh, thanks for summer, for the sweetness of watermelon and cold ice, icy drinks. Thanks for um, the chance to be together as a community. We pray that your words captured in this story might somehow speak to us today in 2022. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, God. And anything I say that's not congruent with who you are, I pray that it would be forgotten forever. But if it's true, let it remain. Let it grab hold of our hearts and take root in our lives, I pray. In the strong name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, the church said together, amen, amen. What a weird story. I thought about, like, how do I cut this up so it's less, you know, so I'm not reading for so long. But you just, sometimes you just got to read the whole thing, you know. Um, so today is not going to be a three-point sermon. Because to do that, and uh, to any attempt to handle the passage in that way, I think would sort of, uh, well, degrade the complexity of this story and what's happening in it. And actually, uh, as you'll see, I hope, this story is less about the cannibalization of a child by a mother, and more about some other things happening. What is power? And how is it used? Who are the vulnerable? And how does God show up? Um, so what I want to do instead is give you some context from which this story emerges. I want to ask some questions about the world in which the ancient Israelites lived and the world that this was written in to maybe lessen the sticker shock uh, a, a bit. Uh, after all, there is the cannibalization of a child by a mother. Uh, that is true. But like in the context of the ancient world and, and the writer of the history of kings, like there's nuance. There are things happening here. So we want to try to unpack that a little. And then finally, I want to ask some questions about the people in the story and how we see them interacting with each other. Uh, and hopefully, um, there's something for us today as the church gathered. Uh, that's, my, that's my prayer. That's my belief and hope. So uh, let's start where we should always start. Um, any real estate agents in the room? 
Location, location, location. We're going to talk about context, context, context. You can't take the Bible out of context. When you do, you run the risk of grave danger and harm to, to anyone who's in your hearing, okay? So context, where are we? First and Second Kings tells the story of Israel and their kingdoms. So we're talking about Saul, David, uh, and Solomon, and then the divided kingdom of Israel. Uh, so it tells, you know, from all the way to the beginning, all the way to the end, the last king, Zedekiah of Israel, before the, the, the fall of Israel in 586 to Babylon, right? Then it's the end of both of the kingdoms. So kings is the history of that. If you don't know, Saul, David, and Solomon are the first three kings of a united kingdom, and then the kingdom splits into two. There are 10 tri uh, 12 tribes in total. Two tribes gather together in the south. The capital city is Jerusalem. That is called Judah going forward. 10 tribes in the north gather together, and that is called Israel. Their capital city is Samaria. Um, we are dealing with the northern tribes of Israel uh, and Samaria, and it's interesting to know that... Um, Second Kings opens with the transition between two prophets that speak to Israel, mostly northern, uh, northern tribes, Israel, uh, Elijah and Elisha, right? Elijah has just performed seven great acts of power at the end of second, First Kings. Elisha prays for a, a double blessing of his predecessor's power, and Second Kings opens with 14 acts of power from Elisha, the prophet. Um, Chapter 6 has two of them, the floating axe in the Jordan River, and then the, uh, the peace that comes from the raiding Arameans, which I actually preached on last year in, in Lost in Translation. And then we get our story in chapter 6 of 2 Kings. Um, when, we get to, uh, when we get to our story, the king of Aram has again taken up arms and besieged the city of Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and has laid siege to it and its inhabitants, and so famine ensues, right? If you, if you sort of siege a city and you don't let water in or food in, it's only a matter of time before crazy things start to happen, like in our passage. So um, that's a little bit of the context of where we are. Now, uh, what about Israel? Where are they in the midst of their story? Again, we have these two divided kingdoms, and it's important to know that in the northern kingdom, uh, not a single one of their kings of which there were 20 in its history. Not a single one of their kings, according to the scriptures, did right in the eyes of the Lord. So you, you lay them all, you know, line them all up, and a few of the kings in the south, like uh, uh, Josiah, like a, a reformer, young king, he does well in the eyes of the Lord, and there's a couple others, but like not a single king in, in, in the northern kingdom lives into the covenant that God has invited them to live into as the people. And we know from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus and from the prophets that there's warnings about what happens when the people don't live into the covenant that God invites them into and when the kings don't lead the people in that direction. All kinds of crazy things might happen. Um, so this is about halfway through the northern kingdom's history. We're in about 850 B.C., and Joram is the 10th king of the northern kingdom. So that's kind of where we are in Israel's history. And again, no one's living into the covenant. And things, like, like predicted, get really bad really fast. And the Israelites begin to act like their neighboring nations, which God has invited them not to act like. Okay, That's kind of the setting of where we are. Now, what do we know about child sacrifice in the ancient Near East? Because that's at the center of our text. A woman boils her son and eats him you know, assuming or, or 
enters an agreement with another woman to, 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 uh, as a means of su- survival, right? Because of famine. So what do we know about child sacrifice in the ancient Near East? When we read the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, it is really, really, really important to remember that this book was written 2,000 years ago in the Middle East in an ancient world. So we watch a show like Game of Thrones, or maybe you've heard about it, or Marco Polo, or, uh, you know, um, Vikings or something, and there's all kinds of terrible violence and things that we just like, oh my gosh, that ca-, like, and we sort of give it a pass, right? Because it's like, well, it's appropriate to the period in which that is written or in, in which that happened. They did crazy things. They were a bit barbaric, a bit more barbaric than we are now. Our barbaricy is a little, can you say that, barbaricy? Our barbaric activities are a little more sophisticated, but we're probably no less barbaric than they were. Either way, we give it a pass because it's like, contextually, it makes sense. The Bible was written 2,000 years ago in a barbaric, very patriarchal, and ancient world. So things that happen in the Bible that they would have considered normal, we may just think that is ghastly, uh, antiquated, um, outdated, patriarchal, maybe just weird. In the time it was written, these are things that people maybe objected to. I don't know. We know no one's been back to tell us. But it was normal. Okay? And it's important for us to remember that when we're reading the Bible. Um, Child sacrifice, for example, was normal. Polygamy was normal. Uh, Arranged marriages, taking the spoils of war and doing whatever you wanted with them. That was all very normal in the ancient world. So, child sacrifice, very normal. There is a a couple of extra-biblical texts. There's a Canaanite, Ugaritic text, which speaks of uh, uh, an example, a moment, where a city is sieged and someone offers a child as a sacrifice and a means of survival in this extra-biblical text. It's extra-biblical. You've probably never read it, but it helps us understand the world of the Bible. There's another Egyptian hieroglyph that has the same thing happening. A city is laid siege. There's a famine. Someone offers a child as a sacrifice to the gods to get the attention of the gods, but also as a means of survival. These are normal things that would have happened. Uh, And it it very much has to do with, like, where is humanity in sort of the progression of, of, of human psychology, and how do we even relate to the gods? So back then, it was very much around, like, nobody really knew, and so we offered these sacrifices, and blood sacrifice, because blood is the life force, and so it's the most meaningful thing, and so we either kill an animal, or, and in fact, there was actually a hierarchy of, like, sacrifice in in the ancient world. So do you guys remember the story about David and Nathan? The prophet Nathan comes to David, and he tells the story about this... uh, this traveler who comes, and there's a rich man who has, like, everything in the world, and then there's this one poor man, and he has this one you little lamb. In fact, it says uh, uh, the poor man had nothing except one little you lamb he had bought. He raised it. He grew up with his children. He had shared his food, his drink from his cup. It slept in his arm. It was like a daughter to him. And the rich man takes the poor man's you lamb and offers it as the, the food, and David just goes bananas. He's like, that is insane. That's it. And Nathan says, that's you, Right? Something with life, like blood in it, is of value and able to be sacrificed, and there is a hierarchy of sacrifice. So you would start with, the closer something is to the one who's doing the sacrificing, the more valuable it is. So this one you little lamb means everything to this guy. So it it was an appropriate sacrifice. Keep going down or up the ladder. If 
life, if blood and a life force is a meaningful or appropriate sacrifice to the gods, then a human sacrifice was even more meaningful. So oftentimes there would be somebody who didn't have rights or somebody who wasn't able to defend themselves and they were offered as a sacrifice to the gods. This is all bananas, right? We were like, are you kidding me? I'm not. But it was normal back then. And so the most valuable thing that someone could offer as a sacrifice is, of course, what? Your own offspring. Which is why the tribes and the nations around the Israelites would have done this as normal practice. Now, what do we know about child sacrifice in the Bible? What does the Bible say about child sacrifice? Uh, this, one of the most important things when we, uh, to know about the Old Testament and the Bible is while we may find some of these laws, some of these ideas, some of these practices abhorrent and outdated and ancient and barbaric, it is often, if not always, the case that they were actually a click forward for the Israelites. So the law that we read in Leviticus, while we read it and we think to ourselves, man, that's nuts, that's crazy, if you compare it to the ancient world that they lived in, it was often, if not always, a move towards less barbary, more civilized, uh, like, like relationships among humans. So we find in the scriptures, over and over and over and over again, God prohibiting or discouraging the, the sacrifice of children. Here's a couple of examples. Leviticus chapter 18. Don't give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, which was a Canaanite god, for you must not profane the name of the Lord. Leviticus 20. I will set my face against him and cut him off from his people, for by sacrificing his children to Molech, he's defiled my sanctuary and profaned my name. Deuteronomy. You must not worship the Lord your God in that way, in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifice. So you see what's happening. This is normal practice in the ancient world. But Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is inviting Israel to move towards more civilized, more loving, more peace, more shalom relationships with each other. And again and again and again, if you look at the laws of the Old Testament, this is the case where God is in inviting humans, Israel, to move towards what God intended for us. Now, here's the, here's the bizarre part, right? Uh, this is the, the crux of our, our verse this morning. The writer of 2 Kings makes it pretty clear that this Jewish mother is not only eating their child, but offers him as a sacrifice. So if you go back a couple of chapters in 2 Kings chapter 3, we read a story that says, when the king of Moab saw that battle had gone on against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through the king of Eden, but he failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. So this is just three chapters before. The writer of Kings notes this story in 2 Kings 3, and then we have our story in 2 Kings chapter 6. And the language used in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 6 is consistent with 2 Kings 3, essentially saying that what this woman has done is offered her child as a sacrifice to Yahweh and as a means of starvation. So we've got a real conundrum on our hands, don't we? The Bible seems to prohibit child sacrifice, and yet this woman offers their child as a sacrifice to God, but then also as a means of starvation or as a, as a means of, of, of survival, 
So what is happening here? And it's here I want to sort of move towards uh, home base and, and, and wrapping this up. And I want to ponder who these people are in the story that we find and how they're interacting with each other and what might this, the writer of Kings be doing here. The prophets, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, a number of different passages in Scripture have warned the people of God that if they veer off the path that God has invited them to live on, that all kinds of chaos and havoc will be wreaked on, in their midst and in their communities. We know that the, 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 the northern kingdom of Israel doesn't have a single king that has led them or invited them to live into the covenant that God has invited them to live into. So we can imagine all kinds of craziness ensuing, and it does. Here a woman cries out to the king. So let's just explore these people in this story. And what might the writer of Kings be doing? A woman cries out to the king. Throughout history, women are vulnerable members of society who end up being pawns in a Game of Thrones waged by men. Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, Indeed, the makers of war rarely pay the costs of war, regularly borne by the voiceless, surely the poor, and always the mothers. You have a, a kingdom led by a king who is not following the path God has invited them to. And the, the repercussions, the vulnerable people, the folks on whom that falls on, are those on the edges, those on the margins. And so here's a woman who desperate, is in a desperate scenario, does what maybe only she knows to do. To get God's attention and to survive. Brueggemann goes on to say that the woman takes the famine and cannibalism for granted and only contests or protests against the woman who would not share her son is, a, is the sorry state in her perspective uh, attest to the degradation of war and extreme poverty whereby she is ground down to such a condition. Her statement reflects a kind of desperate concern for survival that, uh, in, that, that is, is consistent with the Jewish death camps, wherein for some, the aim of survival overrode what was called moral. As it was in the death camps for some, so it is here for this woman. Uh, Laura and I have been doing this uh, study, Peacemaking and Reconciliation, with this cohort that just ended. And one of the things that struck me was uh, we studied with this woman from South Africa who's working in apartheid, post-apartheid South Africa, if you can call it that. And she said, uh, I want to invite you to ask two questions when you read the Bible. The first question is, what's the movement of power in a text? Who has it? Who's lobbying for it? Who leverages it? Who does it shift from or who does it go to? What's, the, what's the, 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 the relationship or the movement of power in a passage of scripture? And the second question was, if you come to an interpretation about the Bible, who benefits from the interpretation? So when you, you, you decide this is what this might mean, ask yourself the question, who benefits from that interpretation? There's a sneaky suspicion that it might be me. It might be you. Right? These two questions, I think, are so important. And today, uh, in case you're wondering, like, is, is Micah going to, like, wrap this up, you know, like a, a bow on Christmas? No, I'm not going to do that. Because there's no way to do it. This is a weird passage with a weird moment where 
Sacrifice is prohibited, but here's a woman who does it, and God seems to answer it. It seems to be effective. She, ans- she offers her, ch- her child as a sacrifice, and then, you know, through, uh, well, let's keep going. The, the king, uh, the king is, is, is asked by this woman, help me, save me. And does anybody, like, think about what the king does, his response to her plea. He basically ignores her. She says, help me. And he says, if God can't help you, how can I? To which, don't you kind of want to say, you're the damn king. What do you mean I can't help you? It's your mess that's gotten us into this. Like, it's your policies that have put us here. What do you mean you can't help us? But he says, well, if God can't help you, neither can I. If, I don't, you know, if God doesn't have you know, wheat in the, in, the, in the threshing floor or wine in the press, what can I do to help you? Uh, and then he basically ignores her request. He never addresses her. He, she says, listen, this woman has hidden her son. And he turns it and makes it about himself and his beef with the prophet, Elisha. And if, you know, God is my witness if Elisha's head isn't on a platter by the end of this because Elisha has been critiquing the king and his policies and his, his behavior, which is what prophets do. So the king, the person in power, shirks responsibility, steps away from the mess that's been created, and then ignores the woman, the, the vulnerable person who asks for help. And then we, we end the story with lepers, right? What do we know about lepers in, in the Bible? These are folks who are ceremonially unclean in Jewish life and who are relegated to living outside of the city with no cure for their ailment and likely for the rest of their life, are left outside of community. And in a beautiful moment, they run out, well, they they wager, like, should we stay here, should we go? They leave, and they find that God is miraculously on the move and clearing the way for them, the lepers, and there's a whole, like, bounty of provision in the Aramean camp. And they don't keep it for themselves. Did you notice that? They say, we should go back to the place that has exiled us and tell them about it because this is good news for everybody. (laughs) And the king doesn't believe him, doesn't believe them. Oh, we got to, I know what's happening here, right? So here's what I'd like to say as as we close this this morning. The prophet said that salvation would come to the people, and it does. It comes through the most unlikely, vulnerable, marginalized group of people in the story. Women, children, and lepers. You can almost hear Mary singing the Magnificat. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation, shown strength of his arms, scattered the proud in their conceit, cast down the mighty from their thrones, lifted up the humble, filled the hungry with good things. The writer of Kings makes clear that this moment is connected to a sacrifice of a child, detested by God, and yet, in a turn of events, in this detestable practice offered by a woman who has no other option, God chooses to use an unlikely situation, and unlikely people to bring salvation to the people. It's like the angels have spoken to the shepherds. In this case, the angels have spoken to the lepers. Do you see, do you see like this, this story consistency? That unlikely message comes to unlikely people in unlikely places, and God using unlikely things to do what God does. 
So may we again be reminded that God is often found at work in unlikely characters and even in unlikely means to bring about peace and salvation. And my invitation to us this morning, may we have eyes to see that, where God is doing those things among us and in us and around us. May we have eyes to see it. So often I think we think God cannot be there. God couldn't work with them. They're the enemy. They're the... And yet, over and over again in Scripture, we find that this is true. So may we have eyes to see it and the humility to participate it when we are invited to it. Let me offer a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll gather around the table and in song. Pray with me. God, this morning, <clears throat> I want to ask that in these next few moments of silence that you might visit, be near, uh, speak to us. I pray that um, you would continue to do your work in this community, that we would have eyes to see you at work in the places where you are the places where we've determined are off limits or out of bounds or you couldn't be. May we even have eyes to see that your spirit moves and goes and invites us to follow. So may it be true for us. As we close this morning, we want to invite you to the table and to respond in song. So on my right and on my left, there are elements for communion. I invite you to make your way up the side aisles. There's a little hand sanitizer uh, before you get there. and invite you to take a piece of bread and to dip it in the cup. There's red wine and white grape juice. Uh, I invite you to come and receive uh, the Lord's table this morning as we, as we close. Well, to the church gathered, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church said together, amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week. You can find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter, Awaken Community. See you next time.